My name is Meryl Smith Raskin. Smith is my maiden name. In 1959, a young man from New York wanted to go to Brown, and his parents went to the Hillel director in Providence and said that they needed kosher food for their son. What should they do? And the Hillel director at the time said, go see Mrs. Smith up the street. She'll take care of you. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gatecrashers, a podcast about the hidden history of Jews in the Ivy League. On this episode, we're going to take a look at something seemingly minor, what college students eat, and see how it actually tells us a lot about mid-century American Jewish life. We'll get there by exploring the ingenious, inventive kosher dining scene at a few Ivy League schools going back more than half a century. And we're going to begin in Providence, Rhode Island, where one Jewish student found kosher food at a local Jewish family's house. Once word got around, that house became a home, a refuge, a haven, even, we might say, a kosher dining hall. This is Gatecrashers, Episode 5, Brown University and Mrs. Smith's Kosher Kitchen. In previous episodes of Gatecrashers, we heard a lot about anti-Semitism. At Columbia, there was the special campus for Jews and other undesirables. At Princeton, Jews were excluded from the prestigious eating clubs. At Dartmouth, there were restricted fraternities. At Yale, of course, there were the quotas. But as we turn to Brown University, the Ivy League school in Providence, Rhode Island, we're reminded that at all these schools, Jews weren't just victims, and in fact, never saw themselves that way. Particularly after World War II, as Jews advanced in American society, winning elections, making partner, rising through the ranks, they began to feel more entitled on college campuses, too. When exclusive clubs barred their doors, Jews pushed harder or just started their own clubs. They began to ask why their schools weren't teaching Jewish history or literature. And, as we're about to see, when the dining halls tried to serve them the standard meal of bacon-wrapped shrimp, they said, wait a second, where's the kosher beef? Why start this story at Brown? Well, Brown was a particularly good school at which to agitate for kosher dining. Because unlike some other Ivies, it didn't have quite as bad a history of anti-Semitism. It was founded as a Baptist school, but it was never a divinity school. Unlike Harvard or Yale, it wasn't founded to educate Christian ministers. It had always been a more pluralistic place. It was, in short, the kind of place that wanted to think of itself as good to its Jews. But was it? A moment ago, we heard from Meryl Smith Raskin, who was in the class of 1966 at Pembroke, which was Brown's women's college. When I asked her if there was anti-Semitism at Pembroke and Brown, she said, basically, not much. She did recall a couple of minor incidents, the kind of thing that wouldn't matter to most Jewish students, but would really rankle if you were traditionally observant. So when I was a sophomore, I was taking a biology class and ended up having a Saturday final exam. So I went to the assistant dean of women, Pembroke College, and told her that I needed to change the date of my exam. I needed to take a makeup exam because it was scheduled for a Saturday. And she said to me, Pembroke College is no place for an Orthodox Jew. So I uh, went across the street to my father. His law office was in our home, and he called the chaplain at the time at Brown, Charlie Baldwin, 
The next thing I knew, I was getting a makeup exam. The dean who had given me the problem seemed to uh, have it in for me since then. She was not friendly to me. So that's interesting. When Meryl Smith had trouble with her dean at Pembroke, who didn't want to let her reschedule her exam so it didn't fall on the Jewish Sabbath, the Protestant chaplain, Charlie Baldwin, stepped in to help her. And then there was the funny business with whatever administrator decided on roommate pairings. In assigning dorm rooms, they matched Jewish roommates in most cases. Any Jewish woman who went to Pembroke would be assigned a Jewish roommate. I heard a similar story about Yale in the early 1960s. Jewish freshmen got other Jewish freshmen as roommates. Was this anti-Semitic? Or was this, in a weird way, pro-Jewish? Maybe the deans felt Jews would be more comfortable living with other Jews. Anyway, it was a different era. But things were changing fast. To be Jewish in the late 1950s and early 1960s was to have to constantly make decisions about the tension between one's Jewish identity and one's American identity. Jews had to decide when to hold back and when to be assertive. And one of those areas of tension was food. Okay, quick lesson. The basics of Jewish dietary law, or kashrut, prohibit mixing milk and meat and prohibit eating pork and shellfish. But once you get beyond those fundamental rules, there's a range of kosher observance. Depending on how flexible or strict you are, you might be able to eat out almost anywhere or nowhere at all. Kashrut is something that many Jews decide not to pay attention to. But if you take these rules seriously, they can really circumscribe your experience in the world. Here's what you have to remember. Today, all the Ivy League campuses, as well as dozens, maybe hundreds of other American colleges, offer kosher dining options for observant Jewish students. Some also offer halal food for Muslim students, and of course, options for vegans, vegetarians, people with allergies, and so much more. But back in the day, even the fanciest schools tended to serve their students variations on creamed chipped beef and boiled potatoes, basic institutional food. And if you had special dietary needs, you were out of luck. And mealtime really puts people on the spot. After all, if you're an observant Jew, there are a lot of compromises you can make so that you don't stick out. A Jewish boy, for example, doesn't have to wear a yarmulke. That's not a commandment in the Torah. It's just tradition. You can skip it if you really want to fit in. And if you pray every morning, you can do that in private. But what you eat, that's a very public matter. It's hard to join your classmates in a dining hall or an eating club or out at a local restaurant if you're not going to partake of the food. And the lack of kosher options helped ensure that very observant Jews, those who kept strictly kosher, might pass over the Ivy League altogether. If they did go to these historically Gentile schools, they were faced every day with choices about what compromises to make, about how conspicuous they wanted to be. To refuse to eat a slice of pizza or a piece of birthday cake could mark one as an oddball. So the Jews who did attend schools like Brown were, for the most part, a certain kind of Jew, non-religious, interested in assimilating. But back in the Eisenhower and Kennedy years, at each of these schools, a few students were trying to keep kosher. They were playing a very specific role in mid-century, post-World War II America. Like the first Jews to get jobs in waspy law firms or the first Jews to move into Gentile neighborhoods, they were testing the limits of American acceptance. And they were figuring out for themselves what negotiations they were willing to make 
and what solutions they could find to be simultaneously fully American and proudly Jewish. In the fall of 1960, Nan Basis left her home in the leafy suburbs of New York City for college in Providence, Rhode Island. She was enrolling in Pembroke, the Women's College of Brown University. Brown went fully co-ed in 1971. Nan had a problem. She kept kosher, and Brown, like pretty much every college campus in 1960, didn't offer kosher food. How was she going to eat at this very Gentile university? She decided she would find a way. Get kosher TV meals, and I would eat other things in the dormitory. You know, when you're young, anything's possible. Kosher TV dinners had already been invented, even in 1960. Four years of TV dinners? That sounds pretty bleak. Fortunately, early in her freshman year, she met Meryl Smith, whom we heard before. And Meryl invited her home. We would have Shabbos lunch with the Smiths. I remember it being a very nice house, very close to the campus, and it sort of reminded me of my house in New Rochelle, but nicer. It was a family Shabbos lunch. Nan had hit the jackpot. The Smiths, Nan's new home away from home for kosher dining, were something unusual at Brown, a multi-generational Jewish family. They were an old Providence family. Merrill Smith's brother, father, and uncles had gone to Brown. She lived in Providence, a quick walk from campus. And in the late 1950s and early 60s, her house was where Jewish students could get kosher food. So how was it that Merrill Smith's household in Providence became the hub of kosher dining for the Brown community? She said it started in 1959, when she was in high school and her older brother, Herschel, was already at Brown. That was when that Jewish boy from New York, the one Merrill told us about, decided he wanted to go to Brown, and the campus rabbi called up the Smiths. Let's go back to Merrill Smith Raskin. This had never happened before, but actually my parents did host many visiting Orthodox Jews, rabbis, whatever. If somebody was coming to Providence for some reason and needed a kosher place to stay, they often were sent to my parents' home. When this young man's parents came to talk to my mother, she said, sure, I'll provide you with kosher meals. And at that time, you couldn't have a refrigerator or any cooking equipment in dorm rooms. So this young man from New York, he snuck in a refrigerator anyway. You could get away with some things like that. He had a little refrigerator that he made look like a table. I don't think he had anything to cook with, though. But he came to my parents' house every day for dinner. That young man from New York, whose parents wanted to make sure he had kosher meals, he is going to be very important to this story because he was the beginning, the anchor, the genesis of kosher dining at Brown. We'll return to the Smith family Friday night Sabbath table in a moment. But first, let's talk a bit more about the role that food plays in American identity, and especially American Jewish identity. We're much more comfortable today with the idea that food and eating is a way to identify and to disidentify with groups. This is Rachel Gordon, a professor of Jewish history at the University of Florida. She says that in the 1950s, keeping kosher in a public, visible way seemed like far less of an option than it does today. Jews who were actually in Ivy League schools in the 50s and 60s, they probably especially didn't talk about kashrut to non-Jews. To a lot of Gentiles, 
it would have just seemed totally weird. In fact, for the most part, now that they were a few generations removed from immigration, assimilated American Jews had kind of discarded kashrut, the dietary laws. They saw these rules as old-fashioned and out of date. The first half of the 20th century, I think we see more Jews regarding kashrut and kind of strictness about kashrut as being a sign that you were maybe too connected to the old country. In the first half of the 20th century, I think we find more of that looking down on immigrant or older Jews and women. I mean, kashrut belongs to women and Orthodox Jews and European Jews mostly in the 20s and 30s. Gordon pointed out that in Marshall Sklar's famous study of suburban American Judaism in the late 1950s, almost none of the Jews he talked to said that keeping kosher was an important part of their faith. He says that actually kosher dietary laws get a 1% vote among his respondents for what's important to being Jewish. As Jews were assimilating into the American mainstream, Many found the old kosher laws to be not just unnecessary, but a little bit shameful. Rachel Gordon mentioned that in 1955, Time magazine put the novelist Herman Woke on its cover. Woke had had a major hit with the Kane Mutiny, and now he had a new novel out about a young Jewish woman called Marjorie Morningstar. And according to Gordon, the article about Woke said that he adhered to dietary laws that many American Jews would just as soon leave behind. This is what Time Magazine wrote about Woke. Quote, He is a devout Orthodox Jew who has achieved worldly success in worldly wise Manhattan while adhering to dietary prohibitions and traditional rituals which many of his fellow Jews find embarrassing. So in the 1950s, kosher dietary laws were not just an issue for Jews among the Gentiles, but also for Jews among fellow Jews. Kashrut has always been a way, of course, for Jews to distinguish themselves from Gentiles. But probably in the past century that we're thinking about, it's maybe been even more important for American Jews in distinguishing themselves from other groups of Jews. This divide was very real at Brown. Looking back, Merrill Smith Raskin figures that her class was about 20% Jewish. But those Jewish women were, for the most part, not very interested in matters of Jewish observance, like keeping kosher. There was really no orthodox presence. Kashrut was not considered. Anybody who wanted to come to Brown or Pembroke and live at the school knew that they weren't going to have good accommodations. The Boston area had plenty of places that had kosher food. My second older brother went to MIT, and there was no problem there with getting kosher food. At Brown and Pembroke, there was no need for that back then. Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. Looking back from the year 2022, 
when airlines offer kosher meal options, when supermarkets have kosher aisles, when non-Jews sometimes say they prefer kosher meat because they think it somehow means the food is cleaner or safer. The 1950s were a whole other world. It was a world where even if you weren't embarrassed by your desire to keep kosher, you certainly didn't expect your college to support you. Remember, this is not an era that celebrated multiculturalism. America was supposed to be a melting pot where we lost our old world ways and became a unified people. So if you planned to keep kosher at Brown, you knew that keeping kosher would be a renegade, do-it-yourself kind of thing. By 1960, though, word was getting out that you could get kosher food at Brown because the Smith family was providing kosher meals to that Orthodox boy from New York. Here's Merrill Smith Raskin again. The next year, people heard that there was kosher food available at Brown, so more kosher students applied, and my mother was feeding a few more people for dinner and Shabbat and holidays. It kind of grew. There were at least three years of students who had all their kosher meals at my parents' house. The students around this dining room eating roast chicken were possibly the entire quorum of kosher-keeping Jews at Brown University at the dawn of the 1960s. Around Miriam Smith's Shabbos table, there were her son and daughter, her daughter's friend Nan Basis, a boy named Mark Shapiro, a rabbi's son from Queens, an Orthodox boy from Manhattan, the one we've heard about since the beginning of this episode. Oh, and one other guy whom Mark Shapiro and Merrill Smith Raskin both remembered. They had the same anecdote about him, in fact, that he was very Orthodox and once got mad at Mrs. Smith for opening a folding chair, which he thought violated the prohibition against building on the Sabbath. We tracked this guy down, by the way, and he said he had no memory of the folding chair incident or even of eating at the Smiths. But everyone remembered him. Merrill's older brother, Herschel Smith, now lives in Israel. He entered Brown in 1958 as probably the only observant Jew there. Herschel told us what happened after his mother got a call about this New York boy who needed kosher food. He said that his mother fed the boy for the whole year and that the next year, several other people said that they heard that this boy could survive in Providence, so maybe they could as well. And so they also came to Brown and they also hit up his mother for food. Word of the Smith family kosher dining room spread and Mrs. Smith's obligation grew. And this was a problem. Why was she doing all the work? She didn't even work for Brown. If there were eight or so Jewish students who needed kosher dining, maybe this shouldn't all fall on the shoulders of Mrs. Miriam Smith? According to Herschel, his mom, feeling overwhelmed, went to Rabbi Nathan Rosen at Hillel, the organization for Jewish students, and said, hey ma'am, why aren't you feeding your Jewish students? But Rabbi Rosen was apparently not sympathetic. He said, uh, if they needed kosher, they shouldn't have come to Bronx. He said that his job was to take care of the social aspect of life of Jewish students, not the religious one. Got that? The Brown rabbi told Mrs. Smith that Jews who needed kosher food should go elsewhere. Basically, the rabbi was saying, no Orthodox need apply. Which, when it comes down to it, isn't very different from what that dean told Merrill about taking a test on Shabbat. Basically, they were sending the message that Brown was fine for Jews who wanted a social life and an education, but not for Jews who wanted a religious life. And this message also comports with what we heard from Rachel Gordon about the way kosher laws were viewed by assimilated Jews in the middle of the 20th century. A lot of these Jews were a little embarrassed by them. So according to Herschel Smith, his mother had to really push to get Hillel to take over her cooking responsibilities. Mrs. Smith asked the rabbi, 
what if I arrange for a cook? Can we use the Hillel facilities? But the rabbi was, according to Herschel, quite hesitant. Herschel said that some prominent rabbis from outside Providence had to call Rabbi Rosen and nag him about kosher dining for his own students. And eventually, the rabbi relented. But he didn't like it. My mother then hired a cook. She arranged for transportation of the food from the commissary to the Hillel house. She gave them a room and let them use their kitchen facilities. And the cook prepared it. And that worked out very well. This was a team effort. The kosher kitchen came about because Mrs. Smith was overwhelmed with all the cooking for students, because national rabbis weighed in to pressure the brown rabbi, and because one of the students eating at Mrs. Smith's house had some key connections in New York. I'm talking here about Richard Hirsch, Brown class of 1963. We've already heard about young Richard. This is the Orthodox boy from New York who came to Brown in 1959 after his mother was assured that a Mrs. Smith in Providence would feed him kosher food. We found Richard Hirsch, and he told us that at the same time that Mrs. Smith was talking to the campus rabbi, his father, a wealthy New York City manufacturer, was talking to Charlie Baldwin, the Protestant chaplain. And the elder Hirsch promised Brown that he would donate whatever appliances they needed to set up the new kosher cooking facility. Here's Richard Hirsch. My father said, find out what you need. I'll take care of it, put the equipment in. And we hired a woman chef in town. So it was me. And then there were two other Jewish students there, quasi-religious. So we would have Friday night dinner with the chef and three of us. My mother and friends would send the food to the chef who would cook for us Friday night dinner, Shabbos lunch, and available as we needed. Okay, so now Mrs. Smith is off the hook. There's a kosher kitchen and a chef to cook for the students. But now there's another problem. Someone had to pay for the meals. The kosher kitchen charged Jewish students to cover its costs. But those Jewish students were still getting the same bill for room and board that all Brown students got. In other words, they were still paying for the regular dining hall food that they weren't eating. So there was essentially a tax on keeping kosher at Brown. Here's Herschel Smith. There are a lot of people who complained about this, but the administration at Brown wouldn't do anything about it. As it happened, Herschel's father, Archie Smith, was legal counsel for the Rhode Island State Legislature, and he had an idea. My father decided, let's submit a bill revoking Brown's tax exemption if they violate the principles on which Rhode Island was formed and require students to food that was against their religion. This bill never came up for a vote, but after it was proposed, an article about it appeared in a local paper. On January 20th, 1962, the Providence Journal ran a story about a bill that would strip Rhode Island colleges of their tax-exempt status if they offended a student's religious beliefs in one of two ways. The tax exemption would be lost, according to the bill, if, number one, a college or university shall discriminate in any way against students requesting exemption on religious grounds from any requirement that they eat or pay for meals available in a dining room or restaurant owned, controlled, or supervised by such college or university. Or, number two, if the institution shall refuse to arrange for or shall not permit any student to take a makeup examination in place of an examination given on such students' Sabbath or religious holy day. In other words, this bill pending in the Rhode Island State Legislature 
was aimed squarely at Brown. And it said two things. Number one, don't make your students pay for non-kosher food if they're eating kosher food elsewhere. And number two, if you schedule exams for Saturday, let them take their exams on another day of the week. Facing all this bad publicity, Brown folded. Brown decided it wasn't worth fighting about it, so they said, if you have another meal plan, you don't have to buy us. I repeat, according to Herschel, Brown basically said, if you have another meal plan, you don't have to buy ours. So now there was a kosher dining option run by Brown, and it was affordable. Kosher dining at Brown was here to stay. All because Mrs. Smith finally decided that she just couldn't keep feeding every last observant Jew at Brown and Pembroke. There's a funny afterword to the Brown story. Having succeeded in getting kosher dining at Hillel, Richard Hirsch and his parents tried to bring kosher food to his fraternity. Hirsch was living in a frat house, and the other frat brothers were not avoiding pork, to put it mildly. So once more, mom and dad Hirsch stepped in. Here's Richard Hirsch reading me the relevant passage from his autobiography. Living in the frat house did not make the challenge of keeping kosher any easier. Once again, my father came to the rescue. My father had a close relationship with Cantor Bernard Barney Bloomstein at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue. Cantor Barney, who worked for free at the synagogue, was the owner of Bernan Foods, a manufacturer and purveyor of kosher canned foods, such as the stuffed cabbages. My father had arranged for Barney to send me regular care packages in the mail filled with kosher food items that I could store in my room. This at times proved humorously problematic. I remember being called to the house telephone one day. Is this Richard Hirsch, said the distraught voice? I said it was. This is Mr. Carlisle at the post office, and we received a package addressed to you. Do you want me to come down and pick it up, I asked. No, you can't do that, he replied. Why not? Because it exploded. We got this damn gunk all over the post office referring to the stuffed cabbage, and it stinks to high heaven. Here's the deal. If you're listening to this podcast, I know two things about you. You care about learning and you care about Jews. And if you care about both of these things, do we have an amazing podcast for you? It's called Take One, and it's hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz. Every day, we read just one page of the Talmud, a very old book offering some surprisingly modern insights into every aspect of modern life. Episodes are very short, just six or seven minutes each, and the guests are surprising. You never know when your favorite congressperson or Hollywood actor or NBA star may drop in for a dose of spiritual self-help, courtesy of Judaism's foundational ancient text. So start your day with a Talmudic shot of inspiration and visit us at tabletmag.com slash take one. We've already heard from Rachel Gordon about how conflicted American Jews were about keeping kosher. How for most Jews, dietary laws could be a bit embarrassing. But it's also true that a quiet revolution was underway. I asked historian Zev Elif about the huge growth in packaged products that were certified kosher. He said that the Orthodox Union 
the first big kosher supervision organization, went through a huge expansion after World War II, vastly increasing the number of products in the supermarket that had the OU seal of approval. In 1945, the OU employed just 40 kosher supervisors to certify about 180 products, 37 companies in all. By 1960, 585 supervisors certified 1,800 products, 359 companies. So that's a tenfold increase in kosher products available in the supermarket, from 180 products to 1,800. And it happened in just 15 years, from World War II to the very moment these Brown students were knocking at Mrs. Smith's door. This is also the exact period when Jewish day schools and Jewish summer camps were expanding across the country. And these schools and camps were places where Jewish teens learned about Jewish observance, including how to keep kosher. The post-war generation was in many ways becoming more educated about Jewish tradition than their parents had been. Day schools complemented or supplemented synagogue schools all of a sudden ensured that you had a rising generation of collegians who know a lot more than their parents about traditional observance and were more embracive of the opportunity given an opportunity to keep kosher, to keep some version of Shabbat uh, and holidays. And all of a sudden, in the post-World War II period, with the rise of enrollment in colleges, felt entitled to be able to keep those traditions on the college quad. And these Jewishly knowledgeable high schoolers were not, by and large, going to Talmudic seminaries or yeshivas for college. No, they wanted to break into the Ivy League. As Elif reminds us, this was not a universal impulse. Smart Catholic boys and girls often chose Catholic colleges. Think Boston College, think Notre Dame, think Georgetown. But the Jews were going Ivy. By and large, Americanization for Jews was measured about how close they, they being the Jews, and their children, how much they were able to encroach or to move into the circle of the American mainstream. Jewish parents wanted their sons and daughters, eventually, to enroll in Harvard. And this was true at all the Ivy League schools, as far back as you looked. So kosher dining was bound to become an issue. American Jews wanted elite education, and a growing number of them also wanted to keep their dietary traditions. In fact, if you do enough digging, you'll discover versions of the Mrs. Smith story at other Ivy League schools. And some of them go back a long way. The earliest Ivy League kosher dining that I found was an off-campus eating club run by a local lady out of her house near Dartmouth. It's described in a senior essay by Alexandra Shepard, Dartmouth class of 1992. In her essay, she writes, Sometime around 1933 or 1934, a small group of Jewish students approached a local woman named Dorothy Kaplan and asked her to cook for them. She brought kosher food in from Boston for approximately 15 students who ate both lunch and dinner there. Significantly, the club was relatively unknown even to Jewish students. The very existence of such a club might have been an embarrassment to Jewish students who didn't want to advertise the differences between themselves and other Dartmouth students. It may also have been that the other Jewish students were so much more oriented toward mainstream Dartmouth that such a club meant little to them. So in the 1930s, at Dartmouth, 
the off-campus kosher eating club was largely invisible even to Jewish students, and the vast majority would either not have cared or would have been embarrassed that such a club existed. I have a strong feeling that there were stories like this at all the Ivies, little clusters of Jewish students who found their kosher food on the sly. Then again, as we've heard, by the late 1950s and early 60s, things began to change. Jewish students got bolder everywhere, and at all eight Ivies, kosher dining efforts started to take shape. A household kitchen here, a hired cook there, stuffed cabbage mailed in from out of state. These efforts were sometimes affiliated with the university, but sometimes it started with parents like mom and dad Hirsch making some phone calls, or local observant Jews helping out, or students taking matters into their own hands. They would carve out spaces where they could separate milk and meat, decades before colleges found it convenient to kosher an oven in the dining hall. I talked to Abraham Kaufman, who was Princeton class of 1963, same year as Richard Hirsch at Brown. He arrived on campus as a freshman, an Orthodox Jewish freshman, in the fall of 1959. I had to explain to my roommates that it was the beginning of the year, it was September, so of course there was going to be Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot and Simchas Torah, and I had to explain to them that I'm going to be absent for these few days. I had to explain to them that I put on tefillin every morning, and I had to explain to them that on Saturday I won't be doing certain things, uh, which I did, and uh, uh, I would say Goyim a very understanding of feelings and religious obligations. There was also the matter of where Kaufman was going to eat. At first, he tried to eat what he could in the dining hall, avoiding the non-kosher meat and the shellfish. But then he lucked into a different option. I met somebody, a Jewish man who owned a restaurant in Princeton, and he wanted me to teach his son, give him bar mitzvah lessons, which I did. He would give me suppers a few times a week. He would give me fish in his restaurant. That was freshman year. Because of Kaufman's commitment to keeping kosher, His sophomore year, he was not able to join one of Princeton's eating clubs, which are so central to campus culture. You'll remember them from episode two. But he found another boy who was keeping kosher, and together they hatched a plan. Sophomore year, I had a a friend who had been in Israel the year before. He was spending his junior year abroad, and he was more experienced with what to, how to handle it, and he cooked in his room. So we always, my sophomore year, we ate suppers together. And at that time, that sophomore year, he and I and a few others, we organized the creation of the Yavna House, which would be an eating facility for students that wanted to eat kosher. Today, Yavna House is still the name used by the Orthodox community at Princeton. But back in 1961, it was principally a place for about a dozen religious Jewish students to eat. And 60 years on, Abe Kaufman still remembers the cook. Mrs. Fleischer. I could never forget her. She only spoke Yiddish, and I knew some Yiddish from home, and I spoke Yiddish to her, and my parents used to kid me. They would say, you see, you went to Princeton just to learn Yiddish. As the 1960s progressed, and people from all communities began embracing ethnic pride, kosher food really came out of the closet, or the pantry. In 1965, Hebrew National maker of kosher hot dogs and other meat products, introduced its now-famous slogan, We Answer to a Higher Authority. Here's a Hebrew National TV spot from the 1970s showing Uncle Sam holding a hot dog. Check out the voiceover. Government regulations say we can make our Hebrew National beef hot dogs from frozen beef. We don't. 
The government says we can use artificial coloring. We don't. They say we can add meat byproducts. We don't. They say we can add non-meat fillers. We can't. We're kosher and have to answer to an even higher authority. Hebrew National had always been kosher, but never before had they leaned into their religious heritage with so much pride. They realized that being ethnic was now cool and could be played to their advantage. Here's historian Rachel Gordon again. In saying we answered to a higher authority, they were sort of making this joke about, you know, we we are following God's laws of kashrut. And I think it was sort of meant to, you know, make people think, oh, there, there probably is something better about keeping kosher. Leap forward a bit more to when I was a college student at Yale in the 90s. And universities were bragging about how nice their kosher dining facilities were. Today, offering a wide variety of food options is one of the ways schools recruit people of all ethnicities and tastes and needs. You want gluten-free? They've got you covered. Vegan? Sure. Kosher? You bet. In retrospect, it all looks inevitable. And maybe it was. Maybe it was bound to happen. One of the most moving conversations I had was with Carl Posey, a philosopher living in Israel. In the fall of 1961, Posey was an Orthodox high school student from Brooklyn applying to colleges. Here's how he recalls his on-campus interview at Yale. The fellow who interviewed me had never heard of kosher food. We talked about why I was interested in Yale, and he saw I was wearing a kippah. He thought, oh, you want to be a rabbi? And I said, no, actually, I want to be a professor. And I said, you know, that when I come here, there is going to be an issue about getting kosher food. And he said, well, you know that part of the Yale experience is the dining halls. That is part of making the Yale community. I said, I want to be part of the community. I would choose Yale because not only of its intellectual excellence, but because I have a sense here of a community. And he picked up the phone and called the director of dining halls. And he said, there's somebody here whom we're interviewing. And he says that he needs this thing called kosher food. Do we supply it? And the answer he got was, we tell boys who are applying to Yale who want kosher food not to come here. Um, and he reported that to me. And I looked at him and said, is that something you're going to hold against me? And without thinking, he said, no, that's not something we'll hold against you. That's something you should hold against us. Please join us next time for Gatecrashers, Episode 6, Cornell and the off-campus, off-road, off-brand, hippy-dippy Jewish commune. Gatecrashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. It's written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crame is our research assistant. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sarah Fredman-Ader, and Daron Rousquet of Tablet Studios, Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine, and Christine Ragassa and Megan Larson, Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. Additional engineering by Ryan McAvoy. Please go rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this series, tell a friend. Do you have a story you want to share? Maybe a story about kosher dining in your own college days? You can write to us at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com 
Or better yet, leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. That's 917-310-0456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. For more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash gatecrashers. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. That one's pretty clear, actually, for him.